0: If you have your Bible this morning, I would ask that you turn to John chapter 9. And I want to, while you're turning there, give you some background information uh, as to what's going on here in the passage in the Gospel of John. Jesus is in the thick of his ministry. He is now facing, ironically, opposition from the religious people, the leaders. And in chapter 7, his own family rejects him as the Messiah. Later in chapter 7, It tells us that the people are divided over who Jesus really is. Even the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Pharisees, are in in disagreement and at odds with each other. And in chapter 8, Jesus is debating these church officials. And beginning in verse 31 of chapter 8, he tells the Jews who believed in him that if they abide in his word and are truly his disciples, they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Now remember that word, free. Free. It'll come back to us. And then in verse 36, he says that if the Son sets you free, talking about himself, you will be free indeed. But then in verse 58, he says to them, uh, the church leaders, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Knowing that Jesus was putting himself on an equal plane with God, who was known as the great I am, they reached for stones to kill him, out of, uh, on the spot for blasphemy based on Levitical law, but in verse 59, the end of chapter 8, it tells us that he escapes them unharmed. The religious leaders are now set, totally set against Jesus. They're out to plot against him and find a way to kill him. In chapter 9, almost, it almost seems to be a living illustration of the freedom that is found in Christ in contrast to the bondage that is found in the law of men. If you would stand with me, we want to read chapter 9 out of reverence for his word. We're going to read the first 12 verses. We will work our way through the whole chapter. But this is the mistaken identity of the man born blind. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar We're saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him or he looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. God, we pray that today our eyes, in a way, would be open to the truths of your word and what you want to say to us today. If there's someone here who has not yet seen you, really seen you as Savior, as Master, that maybe today they would do that. If there are other adjustments in our life as believers that we need to make today, that we would be willing to lay aside whatever it is that would keep us from that and make those decisions today God use your word not me use your word to challenge our hearts and we ask these things in Jesus name amen please be seated Jesus and the disciples passed by this blind man that they probably passed by many time day after day the text specifically tells us that he was blind from birth his eyes had never functioned properly it was not an accident or a disease later in life that caused his blindness and when a person had a birth defect like this one it was a common belief that in Jewish culture it was always a result of that person's sin or the sin of his parents or her parents that assumption is made here in the question of the disciples but Jesus backs up and clarifies he does not deny that suffering does come from the curse of sin. We know it does come from that. He knows firsthand what sin has done in man. In fact, uh, his very reason for coming to earth, the agonizing pain and death that he would suffer in a very short time that he knew about was all a result of man's sin. But here he specifically says, this blindness was not from this man's sin or from his parents' sin. Now some of this philosophy has begun to creep into the modern church. It is very dangerous and, can I say, unbiblical. The teaching of the prosperity gospel says this. Blessings by the world's definitions, being health and wealth, will come to those who are faithful to God. If you have enough faith, you can just name it and claim it, and it's yours. On the flip side, if you don't have health or wealth... It's because you are lacking in your faith to God. Folks, that's not correct. You can simply go and read the story of Job. Just read the first two chapters to find out that the religious can suffer. You can listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Bible is clear that if Jesus the very son of god face suffering we also will suffer or will face suffering the teachings of jesus and the bible do not fit into the prosperity gospel and it does not fit into the questions that these disciples were asking jesus so what reason does jesus give that this man was born blind read verse 3 again with me again with me jesus answered it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus knew what he's he's getting ready to do. He knew that. Do you think there was a day that went by that this man didn't wonder, why am I born this way? Why was I born blind? It doesn't give the specific age of the man, but in verse 21, if you were to look down, it tells us that he was of age, and that simply means he was an adult or old enough to speak for himself as an adult. And I wonder sometimes if we have ever asked that question, why? When we are faced with trials, when we're in that valley of of suffering, and it's hard to understand if we don't ask the same question that probably this blind man asked, God, why am I dealing with this suffering? Can I tell you? that we cannot always give a good answer as to why. Sometimes we understand quickly because there are immediate results of our suffering. Sometimes, like the life of this blind man who was an adult, years could go by and God seems silent or absent. You know that sometimes we will never know why something things happen in our lives. Only until we stand in God's presence will we know why You know, maybe a better question than why is what and how. What do you want to teach me, God, through these sufferings? And how, through what I'm going through, can it bring more glory to you? Maybe that's a better question. I want you to look at the second part of what Jesus says here. Read verses 4 and 5. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work as long as I am in the world I am the light of the world. Jesus tells them to get busy in the work of the Lord. They were heading down a road of debate that so many times can get us distracted from the work of the Lord. Now, is it important that we are grounded in our faith and know how to give a response to those who question the essentials of the faith? Of course it is. It's biblical. We're instructed to be ready to give an account, to know why we believe and what we believe. So that's important that we do that. But so many times Christians can get caught up in defending an opinion or winning an argument about something that only an infinite God can really understand. I believe Jesus is saying here, don't major on these debates and miss the work that I have for you. He's also saying this, get busy in the work of the Lord while there's still time. Jesus knew that this time he spoke of, of night was coming, was probably during his crucifixion. It was, he was also thinking that shortly after that, he would be leaving and going back to heaven. He challenges us, as we've studied with Pastor Scott over the last several weeks, in the book of Revelation, folks, time is short. How many times have we thought, you know, someday, when I'm less busy, I'll serve the Lord. When I'm financially secure then I'll serve the Lord. When I retire, I'll serve the Lord. And on and on to turn around and realize that the Bible is true when it says our life is but a vapor and is gone. Folks, we need to live each day without regret and then finish a life with no regret. So Jesus, the Lord of all creation, that was present in Genesis 2, the one who fashioned a whole body Out of the dust of the ground, here in verse six, kneels down and begins to make some more mud from his saliva. Did Jesus need mud to make this man whole? Well, there were occasions, there were times when Jesus healed by just saying the word. We remember back uh, the Roman centurion in Matthew eight, whose servant was suffering. He told Jesus to only say the word, and my servant will be healed, and he was and. And Jesus was astonished by this man's great faith. Some scholars believe that this man, uh, being blind from birth, may not have even had eyes to be healed. That Jesus truly created new eyes from the dust of the ground. Some scholars believe that Jesus was using this simply as a test of faith to see if he would really believe and do as instructed and then be healed. Jesus goes on to instruct him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. It tells us in the text that Siloam means sent. And for the text to point out the meaning of this place has some significance. It was a pool inside the city that was formed by a man-made tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel. You see, there was a larger body of water outside the city walls in the valley of Kidron. And they made this tunnel to go through the, under the ground and into this pool of Siloam so that people could come and draw water from that so they would not have to go outside the safety of the walls of the city. It was a man-made pool. But as I began to study about this pool, some things came to light. During this time that we were talking, these events and these activities are happening, the Feast of Tabernacles is going on there. And it's interesting that from this pool of Siloam is where they would go to draw water for the water rites that would take place during the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would take this water and they would do a certain ceremony and pour it out, and that water represented salvation. Is it any coincidence that Jesus, the one sent, Siloam, sent this person to the pool? that was of salvation, or represented salvation? Was Jesus sending a message of being the true Messiah and the way of salvation? Verses 13 through 17, look at the missed miracle. It says this, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes. And I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, talking about Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? Since he's opened your eyes, he said, He is a prophet. Now, what amazes me about this passage, and it's not amazing in a good way, is that the Pharisees were more concerned about someone violating the man-made Sabbath laws than a man born blind receiving his sight. Amazing to me. But then I began to research in my commentaries the ridiculous laws that had been added to the original laws. I want to give you some of those. According to the laws of that day, Jesus had broken at least three of them. At least three. By making clay... He had been guilty of working on the Sabbath. But here are some of the specific things that were forbidden on the Sabbath. We know that work was one of those. Work was forbid, forbidden. But what constituted work? Let me give you those examples. A man may not fill a dish with oil and put it beside a lamp and put the end of the wick in it. That's work. If a man extinguishes a lamp on the Sabbath to spare the lamp or the oil or the wick, he is guilty. A man may not go out on the Sabbath with sandals shod with nails. The weight of the nails would have constituted a burden, and to carry a burden was to break the Sabbath. A man might not cut his fingernails or pull out a hair of his head or his beard. So there's work. Healing was forbidden. Jesus did that. He violated the Sabbath that way. Let me give you some of those details says this, medical attention could only be given if life was in actual danger. Even then, it must only be such as to keep the patient from getting worse, not to make him any better. I'm just reading. What I, a man with a toothache might not suck vinegar through his teeth. I'm for that any day <laughs> of the week. But this was in the law. It was forbidden to set a broken limb. Son, it's okay. Just rub some, no, don't rub dirt on it. That's work. You just lay there until Sunday. If a man's hand or foot is dislocated, he may not pour cold water over it. And then here's one other specific. As the fasting spittle, that's in the words, which was used like a medicine back then, it was not lawful to put it so much as upon the eyelids you think Jesus, Jesus knew these man-made laws? These rules are ridiculous and, we, and almost comical, we laugh at them, but can I tell you that modern-day legalism has done the same exact thing? We set up our own preferences or follow things that we have been told in the past that were not biblical or at least partially biblical, but we do them because that's the way we've always done it. Or in reaction to a bad experience, this is what we've been told. We make these rules, and then we rest in following these man-made rules rather than listening to a loving God who has laid out His plan in His Word, who speaks to us not contrary to His Word, but in accordance with it. We must follow the moral laws of God. We know that. But so many times we hide behind the preference of man, so that others will see us as righteous. Folks, be concerned with God's desires. I faced some of this legalism growing up, uh, part of the um, independent Baptist church, and if a man's hair was touching his ears or collar, he was a sinner. If a woman wore pants, she was a sinner. The list goes on and on. I was finishing my undergraduate degree at Tennessee Temple University in 1991. I was trying to seek direction, whether to come out of college and go into ministry or to continue on at a seminary. And so I put out my resume here and there. And uh, we were hosting a conference called the Southwide Baptist Fellowship. And many pastors from the whole southeast were going to be there and they would be looking to hire youth pastors. And sure enough, someone requested an interview. I was nervous and excited, as anyone would be. And the pastor met me in our cafeteria to ask me some questions. And I, my hope was, and my thought was, well, he'll come out and he'll ask me, well, Kevin, tell me about your salvation experience. And that would have been the question. Or maybe the question would be, Kevin, tell me about your journey in life. You know, obviously you're, you're here studying to go in the ministry. How is it that God's led you to this point? You know, what, what are you thinking God's leading you to do? Do you know what the first question he asked me was? Do you consider yourself a fundamentalist? I was kind of taken back a little bit and I sat there for a moment and I looked back at him and I said, that depends. I said, if you're talking about the fundamentals of man, then I'm not a part of that. I don't want to be a part of that. But if you're talking about the fundamentals of scripture, I'm all about that. I want to see young people, I want to see people understand God's word and what it says, to know what it says, to live by it. That's what I want to be a part of. You know, he asked me a couple more token questions, but I could tell by his face and his body language that that interview was over. And can I tell you, I was relieved. I was fearful. I shared this with Sherry as I was going through the interview process and trying to find a church to work in. I was concerned that God would lead me to a place where you could really minister to people, to not expect people to be totally cleaned up when they came to church, but to be able to reach out to people who needed to see the love of Jesus Christ to experience His grace and with my degree I was a little concerned I would be able to find that and I can tell you it's a long story how God worked out Pitts Baptist Church in my life some way comical how it worked out but I, I can tell you folks I praise the Lord to be able to come and work in a place that loves people for where they are and instructs them Gently and sometimes slowly to become more and more like Jesus. It's what it's about. It's what it's about. You know, it wasn't just a couple of years ago. I'll give you another example. That I was told that strumming a guitar should never be done in church. But picking a guitar was okay. I thought it was a joke. But then I realized, sadly enough, that the person was serious. And it was sad to me that somewhere down the line, someone in authority told this person that strumming a guitar was a sin. And they believe that. There are other things that men through the the years have told people that are so unbiblical. And they live in this prison, in this jail of legalism. Be careful. Folks, that's pharisaical. It's what Jesus was dealing with right here. That the rules were so much more important than what was really happening and what was really going on. Some of the Pharisees saw that there was no way a sinner, someone apart from God, could do what Jesus had just done. There was a division. So they needed some more information. So let's look at the malign witness and unmistakable truth, beginning in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind. And received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And the parents answered, We know that he is our son and that he was born blind. But he now sees and we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews' legalism. For the Jews had already agreed... That if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. What are they saying here? Tell the truth. Come on, tell the truth. We know, they already made their minds up, they had their minds made up. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though, and here's the simple truth, I was blind, now I see. They couldn't argue with that, could they? They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Here is this uneducated former blind man, shall we say, giving them the business. I can see the jaws dropping the bewildered look on their faces, the faces of the Pharisees getting red hot mad and steam coming out of their ears. Can you? But he had them. And he had used their own logic against them. And what do people who know they've been had and can't admit that they're wrong do? They begin character defamation and insults and forcibly just kick him out. Get out of here. But I want to show you the master's mission. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, Jesus went and found him. Obviously, this man didn't know what Jesus looked like. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Notice in your scripture that man is capitalized. That is a title of the Messiah. That is more proof that Jesus is the Son of God and who he said he was. Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and who is he, sir? Some of your transma- translations may say, Lord. It's translated here, sir, that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it's he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, master, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become Blind. This man physically saw Jesus, but then he believed and really saw Jesus and worshipped Him. Verse 39 is one of the greatest yet saddest verses in all of Scripture. What is the difference between those who do not see and then see and those that see and become blind? It is the difference in a person admitting and not admitting that they are blind, helpless, totally guilty, and lost without Jesus. You know, when we really think about it, there's going to be a lot of people who are blind because of their own pride. I need to be lifted up. I need to be good enough. I need to earn it. I need to be the maker of my destiny. In reality, believe the same lie that the devil believed, that I can become the God of my life, when in fact, you're blind to the truth. Verse 40 says, Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Have your eyes been open to see the need of a Savior? Are you like the blind man in the fact that you need to truly believe in Jesus and put him in his rightful place as king of kings and lord of lords, a place to be worshipped? Maybe you're trapped in the lie of legalism. Can I tell you that God wants your walk to be about a relationship with him and not a set of rules to check off? He is about grace and mercy toward his children, and he wants us to have that same attitude toward his children. I'm not saying we excuse sin. Some of the best love we can give to someone is to go to them privately, lovingly, and point out what they're doing is sin. We do that with our children, do we not? Do we want them to fall into danger? No, we point out the thing they're doing is sin. We help them through that and get to the other side. Pointing out sin to someone and helping them through that is not hate, is not judgment, that is love, and we're exhorted to do that. The problem is, is when we go and we say this, I know, I know it. I I have the wisdom. Ask God to give you the wisdom and discernment as a believer. Lay down your pride and let God continue to teach you and change you into a lifelong learner. When we resist change or anything different, we are saying, I've arrived, I know it all. And that is a dangerous place that legalism leads to. Legalism says, here are the rules, check them off, and you are set. How stale and rigid and empty is that? But a relationship with Christ says this I want to know you. I want you to know me. Let's walk through this life together. No matter what it brings, I'll be there with you. I will help you. I will be there for you. It is a relationship full of love and grace, mercy, and freedom. You know, one of the arguments against our freedom in Christ is that, Kevin, if we don't have rules, people are going to go crazy. People are going to go crazy. They'll do whatever. We've got to have these rules. Chuck Swindoll deals with this subject in greater detail than we can deal with on a Sunday morning message. His book is entitled The Grace Awakening as a reformation against legalism. I would challenge you to go read it. Excellent book. And he gives three practical suggestions on dealing with this very issue. The first one is this. Guard against extremes if you want to enjoy the freedom that grace provides. Those extremes are legalism and liberalism and so many times in our life in our walk as believers we are trying to find that balance and it, it's equal here our balance in our parenting there are times when our kids love it and we give them grace they've done something wrong and we say in our minds we may not say it out loud Loud this time I'm gonna give you grace there are other times for justice our kids don't like that one as well I didn't like that one as well dad um, <laughs> And our our fannies hurt, or something that we have and cherish and want to use is taken from us, a privilege. Folks, there's balance in all of that, of figuring that out. In our walk as believers, how much freedom do we take? How much uh, uh, rules and regulations, which they're there, do we put on ourselves to be balanced in our walk with Christ? That all happens in our relationship with Jesus. You know, when we face those issues and we say, ooh, I don't know what to do here, what is a great thing to go and say, God, what do you think? Jesus, share with me what I should do here. Impress on me. Show me from your word what it is that I need to do. Folks, that's a relationship, is it not? Number two, he says this, treat grace as an undeserved privilege rather than an exclusive Right. Live gratefully, not arrogantly. What should a believer ever have an arrogance about him? We've got to be careful that we have it all together. Have fun, but don't flaunt. Folks, when I read these things, it's all about our attitude. Do we show an attitude as a believer of someone who is gracious and loving? Are we a judge and always critical and all about the letter of the law. Number 3, remember that while grace came to you freely, it cost the savior his life. Grace, you've heard the acrostic God's riches at Christ's expense. I like to remember that. Because folks that grace has been bestowed and given to us freely. Folks, it was expensive. And when we just go out and do whatever and say, oh, God will forgive me, that cheapens the grace of God. We need to be careful as believers how we live to not t- take advantage of that grace and that freedom, but that people see in us a difference and a person of Christ, who is different who is at peace who is loving who is gracious and kind is that you? or are we rigid and judgmental? grace God's given it to us we need to give it to others let's pray together God, we ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would work in us today. God, if there's someone in this room who has not yet really seen you as Master and Lord, that today would be that day that they would see. God, for us in here who look over our life, maybe even this past week when we've made statements that were judgmental or critical or not anywhere near grace. God, we ask for for your forgiveness. And we ask, God, that we would have the attitude, the mindset that you have, you've said that in your word, that we take on your mind and your attitude, to see things the way you would see them to walk through this life and make a difference. God, I pray you'd help us with that, that we would not be caught up in regulation, but God, we'd be about a relationship with you. Do your work this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me say if uh, you're looking for a church and you'd like to join our church, we open uh, the doors this morning for that. There are several ways you can join our church. You can join by transfer of letter. If you've been a member of another like Baptist church and you would like to transfer to Pitts Baptist and make this your home, you can. You can also come by statement that you have made a decision to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and have been baptized after you were saved by immersion. Or you can come to say, I'd like to join the church. I've been saved and I'd like to follow the Lord and believer's baptism. Or you can come and say, I'd like to be saved right now. And receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior and and be baptized and become a member of this church. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. If there's something God um, is working on in you and you'd like to come down front, you say, Kevin, do I have to come down front to do business with God? No. You can do it right where you're standing in just a moment. But sometimes when we come down front, what does that do for us? Boy, it puts us accountable to our church family. Sometimes it makes it stick, whatever that decision is we're making. Because probably those people that know us best... Know why we're praying. And will help us with that. They may even come down and pray with you over that. So we open the front here. If you need to come and do business with God, you do that this morning.